Making a hit record is tough, but maintaining success is another skill entirely. On The Art of Longevity, we explore the artist's experience of the music business from the inside. I want to find out what separates those artists and bands that have survived decades in the music business from all those who've fallen by the wayside. We follow a narrative inspired by a quote from Brett Anderson of Suede, who said that all successful artists have followed a similar career arc, like Stations of the Cross. The struggle, success, excess, disintegration, and if you're lucky, enlightenment. With insights and stories for music fans, aspiring musicians, and creators, this is The Art of Longevity. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the revered British premium audio brand. Dave Roundtree is an English solo musician and soundtrack composer. He is also a politician. He was a Labour Party councillor for four years, been a practising criminal lawyer and a long-standing music industry advocate with a founding role at the Featured Artists Coalition. He's also the drummer for British rock legends Blur. On the day of releasing his first solo album, Radio Songs, we talk about the making of the record and stepping up as a singer and front person. Plus, of course, the forthcoming reunion of Blur and what it means to Dave now to still be a part of a band that has a significant place in British music culture and still going strong after 35 years, albeit occasionally. We talk about the role of radio, the current state of the music industry for creators, and we talk about why political leaders struggle to appreciate music and the arts. Dave is an authority on all these things, having been in a longevous, highly successful band, a politician, now making his way as a singer-songwriter and promoting his own records as he releases them. And he plans to make a few more in the coming years, which is great to hear about. So this is a preview of the forthcoming season of The Art of Longevity, in which we're inviting more artists to join me here in the studio and have a more in-depth discussion, a more relaxed discussion. So Dave was obliging, and this is Dave Roundtree. Welcome to The Art of Longevity. Thank you very much. Thank you. How are you today, Dave? Yes, good. It's an exciting day. Release day for my uh, debut solo album. So very hard to... Very hard to... What is it very hard to do? Very hard, to actually, to get to this point. It's been a long, long wait. Yeah. I've been... Because uh, of vinyl delays and uh, various other things, it's been probably a, a year in the planning getting to today. So... Uh, yeah, it's not every day you release a new solo album. In fact, this is your first that isn't a soundtrack, right? Yes. So yeah, yeah. Absolutely. No, it's my it's my uh my uh, long in the planning debut solo album. Yes. So, Radio Songs is out. Amazing. I've been giving it a listen. Love it. So, congratulations. And Thank as you, you say, it's been a long time in coming. Do you feel then there's a sense of completion now you've got it out there, or is this the start of a, a new beginning for you, in a sense? No, this is a, the start of a project. It's a three-album project, <laughs> probably. I'd like to get an album a year out for the next three years. And it's a project to 
both to do something with my songwriting. I've been a songwriting for songwriter for my entire life, really, but never really done much with it. And it's a project to enable me to tour, uh, play shows more frequently. That is the best bit of being a musician, really playing playing live. And uh, without something like this, it means I have to wait for the other three people in Blur to be ready for to be able to do that. Yeah. And that's happening less and less frequently frequently over the years. So did you set out knowing that this was going to be a trilogy? Or has that evolved since you started recording radio songs? Uh, no, I th- I set out th- wanting it to be a long a long running project, most definitely. And will it be a trilogy? I don't know, but I want to make three albums over three years. That's the, the goal I've set myself. That means really motoring this year because there's a lot of blur work going on this year. So finding time and space to write the songs and then record them is going to be the challenge. Got it. Okay, so not necessarily connected, but but together. No, the music I, yeah, I'm I'm thinking about what the next album might be about at the moment. <laughs> we shall see. Okay, and how do you do that thinking? Is it are you whittling down from a range of ideas you have? Or are you just sort of opening yourself to inspiration around you? What's the what's the process? Well, these things evolve, you know. So I'm trying to find a starting point really. In my experience, the the kind of the whole thing's an evolution. You know, the music's an evolution, the songs are an evolution, and the idea, you know, the the, the kind of idea that the whole thing gels within is also an evolution. So it's finding starting points, and that's the difficult thing with with all artistic endeavor. I think you know the the blank page is the the terrorizing. Uh, thing and that's kind of where we're at now you know after today today's like having your birthday well tomorrow's not your birthday anymore I'm afraid so tomorrow I've got to kind of start all over again so that's why I'm musing on today but it's great as much as anything putting out a record for me as a solo artist has meant building a team because you know with Blur we already have everybody in place to do this kind of stuff Things just seem to happen by magic, you know, and of course, because we have great people working on the on projects when we do them. But uh, I certainly didn't want to just kind of slot into that, didn't want it to be a kind of, I wanted it to sound as little like Blur as possible, given that I'm in Blur, so that obviously isn't entirely possible, not a particularly realistic goal, but anyway, I certainly didn't want it to sound like a sort of mini-me to Blur. So I, I wanted to build a team again from scratch. And that's the thing, actually, that took the most time. So you never know, like with any kind of uh, any kind of exercise like that, you never know what it's going to be like working with people until you start working with them. Yeah, I guess that was a, the learning curve for you in many ways. And, even, and releasing a record as well is, is obviously very different. I don't, I don't know what it was like for you back in, you know, the last Blur album was 2015, wasn't it? So it's almost heading for a decade ago. A lot's changed since then, but this is this is your baby. So even releasing it, how is the process different for you? Are, are you going to be on the promotional circuit? You're obviously going to be playing live. You want to get it heard, don't you? Yeah, well, my plan was to spend this summer playing festivals, but of course, Blur then intervened, as it quite so often does, and uh, now I should be playing different, different uh, festivals this summer. So really the bulk of the promo I've really got to put off till next year. So I've played three shows 
up until now, just to kind of dip my toe in the water and see how it would work. Ending up at the Amira uh, last month. And then, uh, yes, I'm playing a, playing a release day in-store Rough Trade East today. And then hopefully I can f- fit in a few festival dates over the summer in between the blur dates. When you do get to take this on tour, what, what are your ideas in terms of how you want to perform this? Well, I've got a band together. It's a band project, really. So there are four of us, but uh, it's not very traditional instrumentation. So I needed three people who could play lots of instruments and we kind of dive around the stage, swapping roles from time to time. So let's talk about specifically who you collaborated with on the record that you want to mention. Yep, well, about... I don't know what percentage, but maybe a half, two thirds of the songs are co-writes with various people. My favourite song on the record is A Thousand Miles, which I wrote with a a brilliant Icelandic artist called Hogni Eglison. He's probably, he's probably laughing if he's listening to this at my pronunciation of his name, but there we are. That's what I call him. And uh, we worked, there's a fantastic studio in Reykjavik which is home to loads and loads and loads of Icelandic albums I absolutely love. So we we wrote it and recorded the demo there. And I, just as I was leaving the house to go to that recording session, I, I was there for a weekend, and I, I somehow contrived to have an argument with my girlfriend like on the way out of the door, you know, so it's like, utterly the worst time because there was absolutely no possibility of making up with her until I got home again so that set the kind of emotional tone for the entire weekend really that kind of (laughs) sitting in the back of my mind so not surprisingly the lyrics are about that but Hogni that's the only the only song I wrote from behind a drum kit really Hogni was on piano and I was on drums I hadn't intended to do that. I hadn't asked anyone to set up a drum kit. We hadn't planned on that, but uh, we walked in the studio and there was a piano, there was a drum kit. We quite naturally kind of uh, sat down behind our two respective instruments and and that's what emerged. Interesting. I love that track, actually. I sense a bit of Robert Wyatt in there. He's somebody I listened to, one particular album of his I listened to a lot growing up. Which one? My copy had uh, his version of shipbuilding on. with shipbuilding on, yeah. Which then went missing, and he's not on the Spotify re-release and some of the CDs. So there's clearly a story behind that. But he wrote that with with Elvis Costello, didn't he? For Elvis Costello's album. Yeah. And then re-recorded it himself, no doubt much to Elvis Costello's annoyance. Yeah. And I think did a much better job. Yeah, an amazing version. I mean, they, yeah. they are both both great versions. Yeah, okay, well, congratulations on it. Despite the um, adverse uh, circumstances for the song, you got a good song out of it. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there's nothing better, actually, than having your emotions stirred up a bit in order to write a song from the heart, as it turns out. Yeah. And she was very happy with the love song, My Girlfriend, so certainly better than a bunch of flowers. Absolutely. Okay, tell me more then about the collaborators. Well, the producer is a guy called Leo Abrams, and uh, he's a very, very gifted musician, and uh, he's he's worked with pretty much anybody you can think of over the years. And he's a, a guitarist and a producer. We'd resolve to work together at some unspecified date in the future. 
And uh, like so many of these resolutions, that that would probably be where it would have, uh, you know, I would have seen him from time to time and we'd have gone, yes, we must work together. God knows I've got enough people like that. But COVID then intervened and we both found ourselves, you know, the first lockdown, I was, wor- I, I, I was working on the pretty much the last TV show that had been filmed before the lockdown started. So it, it, they'd wrapped actually the day before that uh, broadcast by Boris Johnson. Was that the capture? No, that was a show for Netflix called The One. Oh, The One, okay, yeah. And so I, that that was what I did during the first lockdown. So to be honest, lockdown or no lockdown, I wouldn't have seen the live day anyway. With the second lockdown, the, the film industry had pretty much ground to a halt. And so I found myself, as did Leo, sitting in the studio kind of wondering what on earth I was going to do for the next unspecified period of time. So Leo and I got together over Zoom and we said, well, obviously we can't record the record, but we could definitely do some some kind of preliminary editing and things, you know, set the sessions up and, uh, you know, that'll save us a bit of time when lockdown ends and we can actually record it. And then six weeks later, the album was finished. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers and Wilkins, the revered British premium audio brand. Bowers and Wilkins make some of the world's finest audio products from the iconic 800 series loudspeakers, trusted by Abbey Road Studios for over 40 years, to the flagship PX8 wireless headphones. This is music as the artist intended you to hear it. All right, I want to stop off on a couple more songs that popped out at me. I mean, I enjoyed the whole thing, by the way. Thank you. Start to finish. HK. Love that. Very atmospheric. It's got that kind of sonic feel to it that I know comes from some of your influences of talk, talk, and a bit of air in there, perhaps. But I also heard some Thomas Dolby in there. I don't know if that was ever an intention or sprung to mind. But just tell me a bit about the HK thing, because it obviously is about Hong Kong. Well, I don't know if it's about Hong Kong, really. But yes, it, it, it found its... Genesis in Hong Kong. I was in Hong Kong on tour with Blur, and I'm the, I'm always interested in uh, radio in all its various forms, in the abstract and in the concrete. And so, if I go into a hotel room, I usually put the radio on, see what I can hear. And in Hong Kong, in that particular hotel room, I turned on the radio, and this there was this Chinese station playing, and just as American radio is kind of markedly different to UK radio in that it's the intensity is up kind of uh, three orders of magnitude, you know, that everybody's shouting and screaming and the, the songs are ultra compressed. They even have a, a box that they put the DJ through that takes out all the breaths and ums and ahs and kind of rams all the words together to get maximum punch for the for your buck. But it took Chinese radio, this particular station I was listening to, was the same the same three orders of magnitude again <laughs> up the intensity scale. Partially, I think, because I didn't understand the language, wasn't familiar with the music, so it was it was less clear what was going on. Was this an, uh, an advert? Was this a song? Was this the DJ talking? None of it was clear. But so I recorded some, some of this uh, station and was just playing with it on my laptop in the hotel room, kind of treating it and 
making things out of it, you know, can be quite an interesting way to start things, like the cut-up technique. None of that actually found its way onto the onto the track in the end and it evolved into something else I was playing with cutting that up and I'd found a piece of audio on the internet of a, of a woman talking and she had a really interesting voice she, she was kind of it was like a half talk half whisk, whisper half uh, talk and so I, I was cutting that up as well with the, the Chinese radio station and making different things out of that. And that was the sort of genesis of it, really. It, as I say, none of the Chinese radio station ended up on the track just to, for copyright lawyers, just to make that absolutely clear. <laughs> Not that just, I think the Chinese have signed up to any copyright conventions anyway, so it's probably yes, neither yeah. here nor there. But anyway, the uh, and uh, yes, I ended up re-recording the, uh, the woman talking anyway to get it more like I'd envisaged it. And so it ended up being kind of a, a journey, really. I sort of imagined that that famous Hong Kong landscape with its, its sort of journey across that landscape. And that's what we ended up doing for the video for the song. Yeah. A really gifted artist called Megan Yaxley took that idea on board and, and made quite a literal but beautiful video out of it. And... Uh, yeah, so it's, it's ended up being a kind of love, a love song about about Hong Kong, really, which is a place so extraordinary. That's yeah. no, fantastic. Um, so yeah, so you you never know where these things are going to end up. On the theme of radio, then, so obviously, radio songs comes from your childhood experiences. Of was it building radios with your father? I mean, what was the fascination with radio for you and for your dad? Well, my dad was a radio engineer in the RAF when he was in his 20s. So um, he got a love of electronics, really, from that, that that stayed with him for his entire life. And he passed that on to me. So where some dads and sons might go to football together or go fishing together, he and I built radios together around the kitchen table with soldering irons and lead solder in those days and I can still smell the lead solder in my nostrils I'm sure that I, that will have knocked a number of years off my life but it's a very evocative smell so that really has has been something I've done ever since really I still build equipment radio equipment and other equipment uh, musical equipment and uh, I take a very sort of DIY approach to music making. Really, if I can, if I if I can make it rather than buy it, then I will. Of course, I then in my in the kind of early eighties, I discovered computers, and that's supplanted my electronics interest. I did build my first computer out of a kit. Yeah, so the radio technology, what is what I mean by radio songs, rather than songs to be played on the radio, which I think is a a fairly uh, hopeless ambition these days. They don't really play music on the radio anymore. What do you feel is radio's place in the music landscape these days? Yeah, that's an interesting question, I think, because a lot of other technologies supplanted radio in doing radio's kind of conventional job of building communities around music. And, you know, there's so many more options and so many better options. Now, music radio has kind of lost its way, I think. If not lost its way, it's kind of searching for a, a new USP. That idea of, you know, 
shout outs and, you know, tell me what you had for breakfast, you know, call in on one or two, three, four, five, six, and tell me what you had for breakfast. All of that just sounds so... And win 50 grand cash or whatever that's going <laughs> yeah. to cost you. Yes, sounds so quid. so dated, so awkward, so clunky. You know, when you see what happened to MTV, where they just discovered the more music they they put on the less people watched and they just t- turn themselves into a conventional broadcaster and you just wonder if given that really the the mainstream stations now there's so little new music on them they're so heavily formatted it reminds me of kind of american radio you know, what I found surprising about American radio when we first started going out there in the 90s, that's kind of where we are now with UK radio. And, you know, American radio at that point was driven entirely by kind of focus group market research. Yeah, it was notorious, wasn't it? And we we hated it over here and criticised it. I think they are missing a trick somehow. And obviously the, the confidence was knocked, as you say, when other technologies came along and did the job yes. better, essentially. But I read something just this week about the public stations in America, you know, the KEXPs and the KCRWs and so on. I never quite know where they are in the States, but they're doing really well. And they're, they're doing well because they're playing new music and local yeah, artists. Yes, and I, I th- that fascinates me. And I think there's a there's maybe a hint there for our yes. radio that we could do something like that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and the the strength of American broadcasting, you know, not just radio but TV as well, is it's always been a network of local stations. That's the that's the thing that has allowed it to thrive and allowed it to adapt and allowed it to be uh, relevant, flexible, and all that kind of stuff. And We've taken a very top-down approach to broadcasting here. What kind of support would you expect or want from from radio for radio songs? I mean, Six Music, I mean, Soho Radio. Yeah, Six Music has been fantastically supportive, but yeah. there, there are very few, Any you know, obviously XFM, I worked at XFM, XFM for a while, so they could, I wouldn't let them ignore me, you know, but uh, <laughs> other than that, you just kind of scratch your head, really. I'm scratching my chin, not my head, just to feel the sound effects people. But um, there aren't many opportunities for any kind of music at all on TV. And the big national ch- uh, stations seem to be playing music for people to have on in the background now, which I, I something I've never understood. How can you have music on in the background? Yeah, it's a little bizarre. And I'm always curious for artists who have big songs that are well known of course you do with blur you know when the radio plays blur it's always the same three songs yeah it's country house it's it's park life it's girls and boys that's a bit irritating isn't it <laughs> on one, I, mean, I know you're grateful on one level but on another yeah. level why don't they play clover over dover or the universal well, or something yeah, it's the same for every band, you know. That was one of the things about the Featured Artist Coalition, the industry organisation I helped found it. And one of the great things about that was that we all shared with each other how our particular business models worked and we all found that um, it was the same for all of us of two, two or three tracks. 
earned the kind of 90% of the income from uh, all the various sources, really. I suppose on the one hand, you wonder why they don't play these unknown tracks. And on the other hand, you go, well, because they're unknown tracks. And you put people are more paranoid than ever about their listening figures, especially the BBC, you know, who are having their chain yanked by the government all the time and threats to revoke yeah. their funding model and Channel 4 is in a similar position and the government are yanking their chain as well. I mean, so, um, I mean, the radio station's got their own problems. You know what I mean? It's, it's very hard to moan at them for, for doing what they do. They're facing... Uh, a huge challenge from new technologies who as I say I mean radio stations have had it their own way since the 60s there hasn't been a challenger to them really a sort of credible challenger to them to them except in the past kind of decade or two and so um and they have no no idea how that they you know they have no idea how to deal with it and as I say Radio is looking for its its USP now. What is it that radio can do that better than Twitter, better than, you know, WhatsApp? What is it that radio can do that's better than that? All right, you mentioned the FAC, the Featured Artists Coalition. You were a founding member of that. And at the time, you had that specific requirement to basically be the voice of artists, particularly those artists that maybe we don't even realise play on many of those records that we hear or don't hear on the radio. We're 10 years on from the start of that now, and a lot's changed. And some of it for good, a lot of it not for so good for the creator. Just how do you sum up the music industry from the creator point of view at the minute? In the same way as for many, uh, many sectors of the country, the sort of inequality has grown rather than diminished. And the, the kind of promise of... Uh, of uh, new technology hasn't really hasn't really filtered down into the struggling up and coming artists kind of strata of the industry. That's all. That's always the the most difficult place to be. It's the, it's the hardest thing to do is to break through, you know, onto the bottom rung of the bottom ladder. That's the very hardest thing to do. Almost nobody even manages to do that. The challenge is it's very hard to do that unless you can do it full time. How are you going to do it full time unless you can make money from it? Even more now, I think uh, the industry's favouring artists who come from a wealthy background over artists who come from a less wealthy background because, uh, you know, at least in the under the old industry, where many, many things were wrong with it, the major labels used to sign 100 acts a year, you know, knowing that five or six of those would probably go on to achieve success, and but they could recoup the money they spent on their 100 artists from that success. Well, that, even that's gone now. So, you know, those hundreds, those potential 100 artists can wave goodbye to that leg up. And they're signing artists who are already self-successful. Yes. Self Absolutely, that's, that's, yeah. That's the thing, right? So how do you become self-successful if you don't have a means of income? Yes, and it's the the old Catch-22, really. If you if you, you need, it's a full-time job, breaking, your, breaking through that barrier. But uh, 
how can you have how can you do it as a full time job if you're not making any money from it? Which you're not for probably the first five years. You're losing money hand over fist. How you get how how is that sustainable? And for most people, it simply isn't. How to overcome that has been a, has been the central challenge, the technological challenge, and the social challenge of artists since pop music was invented. I guess the the promise of the internet was that it was going to connect artists directly to fans so actually they would have you know they would get to keep a much larger share of what meager income there was in the early days and the hope was that that would make itself sustaining unfortunately that 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 hasn't really in, in most cases been shown to be true just because the the number of artists that are trying to do that is utterly overwhelming and so you know, breaking through, kind of bursting out of the noise, you know, like a station popping out of the static is the difficult thing to do now. How are you going to get noticed in amongst these hundreds of thousands of other aspiring artists that are all trying, already also trying to get noticed? I guess the, the saving grace pre-COVID was that the live scene was incredibly vibrant and that was the bit that was really making money. Also, the you know the vinyl market yeah. booming. I mean, booming from zero. So it is. So there's a very small boom, but uh, from zero to to something. And so it was possible to make some money there for the for up and coming artists. The live scene, unfortunately, was probably the the out of the entire music industry was the thing that suffered worst during the pandemic. Who knew it was run on a shoestring? People weren't raking in millions after all. You yeah, know. exactly. We're now finding out what we didn't know yes, before yeah. as fans. Okay, touring is actually really hard to make it work. Yeah. The common wisdom that that's the way artists can, can make their money is, of course, yeah, it's, it's sort of turned upside down. Again, unless you're at the very top. Yeah. I mean, I'm really intrigued. That we're not, we don't get into politics on the art of longevity as such but you're a politician you've been in that world you know how it operates i'm always a bit cynical when i hear about dcma street inquiry into streaming and you know, we've had the mmc inquiry as well into into the music industry in this country and nothing's really happened i mean what's your feeling about that well it it takes government willingness to make any changes at that kind of level and uh, there's there's really no willingness from the Tories. There hasn't been ever, really, I don't think, to help support the creative industries. There's lots of words and uh, aspirations. But this kind of stuff is a political risk. So why would they? It seems <laughs> madness when you compare it with... France, and they're our neighbours, right? And look at how they value their culture and their music. But our scene is so much bigger and has yeah. contributed so much more on the scale of popular culture around the world. It just makes you wonder how you can make them see it. I don't think the Tories see it as their job. You know, they're fundamentally free marketeers these days. They see it as their job to let capitalism loose and uh, let the tooth and claw scrap that ensues 
end where it may. Let the winners take all. Thanks for listening to The Art of Longevity. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Please take a moment to rate the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen, and do spread the word. Also, you can sign up via the Song Sommelier webpage for our newsletter, artwork, and much more. Back to the conversation. You experienced the other side of this in the 90s, didn't you? I mean, didn't we have optimism? Didn't we have a little bit more respect for British culture, even if it was a bit crass at times? You were the height of your game with Blur in those times. So it must be a weird feeling to be kind of where we are now. And I sense in your voice and what you've just said, you know, that the politician in you is <laughs> not given up yet. <laughs> no, it's frustrating, really. I'm just incredibly frustrated by where we've ended up now because we didn't need to end up here. It wasn't inevitable. It's the result of political choices taken by politicians. I don't think the government sees it as its job to nurture sectors of industry. And so the kind of arguments we were making to the government, you know, throwing big numbers at them saying, look, the creative industries earn billions, tens of billions, potentially depending on what you call the creative industries, hundreds of billions for UK, much of it in foreign currency. We simply can't survive without without that being uh, you know with that in recession you can't survive with that without that being nurtured without that uh, being uh, without that flourishing i think the government listen to those arguments what, I, what i've come to believe the government listen to those arguments and go hmm Never do me. Yeah, their eyes glaze Never over. Never do me. I, you know. Yeah, and it's hard to know what to do, isn't it? Because I think a lot of sophisticated work has gone into that measurement, and so you think, okay, well, we've presented the hard evidence. There's the numbers, and it's it's all very credibly put together with a lot of hard work. Yeah. And then you can also see the art we create right there in front of you, so we can show, not tell. Just go to a go to a gig, go to yeah. a gallery. Yeah, I think you're right. There's something in the values that just is is missing at the minute. Yeah. But musical will always bring us back up. This yeah. is one thing we know. You mentioned you've got the summer shows coming up with Blur. Everybody's excited about that, obviously. Just give me a little bit behind the scenes how these things work. So you've decided to do two big summer shows at Wembley Stadium. What's the preparation that goes in? Oh, there's nothing, there's nothing very exciting. You do some rehearsals and then you do the shows. So I wish I had something more inside, exciting information <laughs> well, for you Well, there must be a that. debate about what you put on the set list. Uh, I would think that's, is, is that yeah. where it starts? Like how do you create No, we have a trusted a member of our team that uh, that suggests set lists for us now. We decided that's something we're spectacularly bad at doing. So, uh, yeah, we are one of our, in fact, he used to be my drum tech, but now he's a... Uh, his sole job is to kind of shape the show. It wasn't quite as seamless as we woke up one day and decided to do some shows, and so here we are, we're doing some shows. It was uh, it was suggested to us some years ago. So we need to do this kind of stuff, you know. We don't want to... We've always been conscious that we don't want to insult people by just wheeling out the same thing again and, you know... This is especially in London, you get the sense of people go, and you know, it's a blur out on tour again, and 
I've seen them 10 times and, you know, so we don't want to provoke that kind of reaction. We'd rather people be excited by the idea of Blur going out on tour. So, you know, when we get offers to do various things at various times, we turn most of them down because you just think, you know, you want to annoy people. So, um, but we got an off, well, we got a suggestion a few years ago, pre-COVID, but uh, wouldn't it be fun to play Wembley Stadium? We've never done that. And we thought, yes, actually, that would be fun to do. So um, our agent started looking at it, started scratching his chin, going, mm, I don't know, well, maybe this year, maybe that year, maybe blah, 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 blah. So I said, yeah, come up with some ideas and, and let me know. Then COVID happened and that was that. And then post-COVID, life just went mad there, there are so few of those big event-sized shows in London anyway. And the way they work is if he expresses an interest in a certain date, you go on a waiting list. And uh, that's a normal thing. There's normally two or three bands on the waiting list. And then if, if one or two or three events on the waiting list, and then if one of them pushes the button and says, yes, I'd definitely like to do this date... Then they go down, they go up to the top of the waiting list and ask each person, each act or event in turn, okay, yes or no? The first one says, no, can't do it. Okay, move to the second one. Yes or no? No, can't do it. And the third one, and okay, the date is yours. So there were like 15 to 20 acts on on the waiting list for each day. Wow. So, (laughs) So it's like, you could put, you know, you could express an interest in it every day for two weeks and still probably not get one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was hearing about this as well when bands were cut, trying to get back on the road Yeah, after COVID. All the venues and the slots were, uh, you know, it was like a, it was a bonfire to get on. In the old days, you, you would express an interest in three days, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you'd probably get one of them. And so you could plan a tour around that. You can't plan a tour around having to express an interest in a in three months worth of dates, and you still might not get any. I mean, how can you how can you work with that? So it actually got in the even though there was the the willingness to do it, it got knocked back for two years in a row, and it looked like it was going to get knocked back the third year, or maybe just not happen at all. The venue, as we said, weren't that weren't wildly helpful at the start. They ended up being very helpful, but. Uh, you know, I was getting quite frustrated by it all. And actually, the two days before we finally got the date, I was ringing around the band going, look, I just don't think it's going to happen. I think, we, I think, why don't we just push it back another year and see see what I see if it, things are better next year. And I was going, oh, well, all right then. So, uh, and then two days later, I got a phone call. Oh, yeah, we got, we got a date. We got a date. Uh, oh, but the teas have got to go on sale on Friday. Uh, can you do some interviews? <laughs> oh, my God. Right. And at that point then... <laughs> Presumably, you know, you, you all still get on. You're a brotherhood, so to speak. You, you're all really excited. And that's, I think that's exactly what we do need, actually, is we need a, a few kind of blur gigs in the summer and we need more events like that right now. Yeah. Uh, so it's really interesting to hear you say that you don't just want to announce you're coming back and just for the sake of it and have people shrug their shoulders and say, so what? I think it's, there is a sense of anticipation and I think it's, it's really great that you're taking that on. Yes, well, I hope so. It turned out that the, the the day after, shortly after they relented and allowed us to do the first date, the uh, day after 
the show there, there was a charity event going to happen and that, that got cancelled. So the day after was free as well. So it was an even more bizarre conversation about three days later saying, oh, you don't want to do two nights, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly the world opens up. There is a European show, isn't there? Three months of European shows. So that's yeah. really exciting. So you've done so much since Blur, of course, we know. You're kind of well known now as a, as, as a polymath. You've trained to be a criminal lawyer, you practice as a criminal lawyer, you've been a counsellor, you were a counsellor for four years in Norwich, you've done soundtracks, now done a solo album. I'm just interested to know where Blur fits in, almost just psychologically now in, in your world. Well, fundamentally I'm still the drummer in Blur, that's how I see myself. So yeah, psychologically I'm there, but it's, you know, it's happening less and less frequently you know most definitely if you're going to plot it on a graph the graph is tapering away to zero so it's not going to last forever did you get some collaboration from your fellow blur members with your solo record i mean it feels like there is clearly some blur inspiration on there yeah, well, I'm in Blur, so you can't. Uh, yeah. yeah, you can't get away from that. And, you, uh, and you, <laughs> most of your studio time has been has been uh, recording with with those guys. And actually, I think most of my studio time has been doing soundtracks now, I and mean, they take six months each. So, uh, and these are full; they're full days as well, you know. So, uh, actually, I've probably I've probably beaten the Blur the Blur record now, but. Uh, Yes, Damon was. I I sent it to various people, including Damon, when I'd finished it for comments, and Damon sent me a page a page of comments back, which were very helpful. So, I thanked him on the back of the record. When you mentioned your soundtracks, the thing that surprised me because I had no idea, but you did the the soundtrack to the now infamous Bross documentary. Yeah, I did. Uh, after the screaming stops, that must have been really interesting because. And we're talking about the art of longevity as band career. So you had this long and very fruitful career with a huge global band and a very well-known British band and still still around. Bross had that ultimate industry, build them up and knock them down experience. Did you connect with that emotionally as you were doing the soundtrack? Yeah, I felt for them. You know, I did. I've never sneered at at. Uh, other artists and their careers. Um, I'm I'm genuinely interested in uh, you know the music industry. Well, when I first got the the phone call about that, it was the the producer and um, the director and I, Joe Perlman, and he and I had worked together on uh, on another project, and he'd inherited that. They were originally going to make uh, more of a sort of puff piece. The the band had two brothers who hadn't spoke to each other, literally hadn't spoke to each other since the, their band collapsed in the, in the 1980s. They'd had the career that Blur had had, but kind of concertinaed into about three years. So they'd gone from nothing to the biggest band in the world to nothing. You know, yeah. not saying that Blur were ever the biggest band in the world, but they were kind of briefly the most famous people on earth, you know, from nothing to the most famous people on earth to nothing. And that changes you there's no there's no doubt about it that's not something you should do to young people but uh, it always happens to young people that changed them that scarred the pair of them for life 
The Art of Longevity is brought to you by the Song Sommelier, that's me, working with Project Melody and Audio Culture. It's recorded at The Cube, London's first member studio for content creators. Currently based in West London, Cube will be opening a second site in Canary Wharf in January 2023. Our cover art is by Mick Clark, and original music for the podcast is by the neoclassical composer and artist Andrew James Johnson. To think that they were going to do a puff piece, it doesn't surprise me. They created something much more effective. But I did hear Matt Goss on, I think it was Saturday Live. He's clearly been through a lot of therapy. Yeah. But um, he was incredibly articulate yeah. about the whole thing. And very philosophical, yeah. actually. Yes. There's something very charming about them. Their, their project was they were going to get together, having you know having never talked to each other for decades. They were going to get walk into a rehearsal room rehearse for two weeks and then play the biggest show they've ever played. <laughs> I mean, what, what could go wrong? So, <laughs> so they, and they had given the film company unrestricted access with no editorial control. Well, whether you think that's a wise move depends on whether you're the subject of the documentary or the filmmaker. Yeah, but uh, yeah. anyway, they were going to, they, they thought it would be a kind of puff piece, you know, it, and uh, the reunion would be there. They'd hug each other and say, "I love you. I love you too." And, and in fact, it, it was uh, it was a uh, that was the first thirty seconds of the film. And from there on in, things well, took yeah, a good dark for them, turn. I think, because they got to make their mark on what has become quite an important medium for for bands, which is yeah. documentary long form film. Yeah, uh, you got to get your brand and your music out there somewhere. And a lot of bands are making documentaries and films these days. I think that is really interesting, actually. Yes. You saw the best of them and the worst of them at their best. They're both very funny, very articulate, very eccentric, you know, and at their worst, they're both very damaged by their experience in the music industry and have struggled throughout their adult lives really to come to terms with what happened to them and, and the the consequences of that for their relationship. I felt for them uh, and uh, it was interesting in talking to people once the film had been out and people had seen it to see who this they sympathised most with, whether it was Luke the drummer or Matt the singer, because they both went into the into the rehearsal room with very different expectations of what they were going to come out with. And uh, I think who you sympathise with most says a lot about what you would hope to achieve in those kind of circumstances yourself, really. Yeah, I mean, you experienced that with... You know, you had those peaks. Maybe it just wasn't the one huge peak and then off the cliff. But it's interesting because people do, you know, they ask me, look, what are the common themes that you've been finding in speaking to bands of longevity, you know, 30, 40, 50 year careers? And there are some, but I often think, well, maybe, you know, there should be some tribute to all of those bands that have fallen by the wayside. I mean, I'm just curious, did you ever feel like you were worried about longevity or you saw other bands crumble and go through that kind of build them up, knock them yeah. down scenario and think that's going to happen to us at some point. Or where did you feel like you crossed the Rubicon? Yeah, it happened to us frequently. Yeah. And that, that was what the music industry was like in the nineties, that roller coaster, you know, and it was to do with the, the way that 
you know, there, there was three broadsheet weekly newspapers that are desperate for news, you know, and a dozen or more monthly kind of 100-page magazines equally desperate for There just wasn't enough music to fill these things. So it was all full, basically, of gossip, wasn't it? Of Piff's band slugging each other off and, you know, the journalists often had egos bigger than the lead singer of the band they were writing about. And, you know, often the, the reviews of the band were about the journalists, not about the band. You know? and so it was kind of, it's a crazy, unsustainable situation. But it just led to, you know, one the journalists who discovered you would, you know, would write about you and have ownership of you. They would move on to somebody else, then all the other journalists would go, well, I never liked him anyway, and you would be da- down the other side, and then you would do something, you know, release a great single, and, you know, another crop of journalists would pick you up. Well, this is it. I mean, the UK press and the music press were complicit in all of this yeah. roller coaster stuff. Yeah, it was, it was a, a, nat- a completely natural side effect of the, the way the music news was set up in those days, I think. And so, yeah, to be, to be a part of that was just really destabilizing. You know, trying to remember, well, you, are you uh, kind of tired old has-beens or the next big thing today? It's just very, very difficult. So uh, we were saved by the fact that we are a great live band. Yes, we have, but, you know, we've made some stupid decisions and said some stupid things and kind of been behaved like idiots many countless times, all of us, you know. You know it's embarrassing to look back over it, but we can do it live. When you stick us on a stage, we can just do it. We can pick up on any audience, get them going, get them in the palm of our hand, you know. And so that's always saved us. Um, no matter what what crazy things we've done outside that arena, that's the thing that's given us longevity, really, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's Jay Marciano who runs... Uh, AEG Live. You know, the, the, there's two big promoters in the world, and that's one. And I think he says, you know, when, when I see a band live at the start of their career, he's been doing it for so long, he can get a sense right there and then as to whether they've got a shot at longevity. And it's, yeah. it's all about the performance. Yeah. That's the thing you can't fake. You can fix anything in the studio. You know, your publicist can fix things. You know, some of your antics, if you're lucky. Anything like that, <laughs> anything like that. You, well, you've got to spin a, a story because <laughs> all, all, uh, all PR is good PR. All right, so let's, um, I've taken up far too much of your time, Dave, and I really want to thank you for coming on. Let's finish on live performance, but what are you going to do with radio songs? What's in your head? How do you plan to get it out live? It's uh, all working fairly well, life. I've played three shows so far, ending up at the Omira in London uh, before Christmas. I'm playing a little showcase tonight, a little as 150 people or something, at the Rough Trade East in uh, in London because it's release day today. And after that, I'm hoping to play a few festival dates in the summer if I can slot them in around Blur's Megalopolis summer. But I think the main thrust of the touring will now have to wait till next year. So I want to get another album out in the spring of next year and then see if I can get on some of the interesting spring festivals, which I think are often better than the summer festivals. Yeah. Next year, if uh, providing I get home occasionally to see the sheep and my girlfriend, 
I'd be very happy to tour for the bulk of the year, really. That's kind of where I'm happiest, really, out out on the road, gig every night, you know, different town every day. There's something something very seductive about that. And stepping up to do lead vocals, I know you're not conscious about that in the studio, but it's a different ball game performing live. How have you felt so far in taking the lead role? It's felt surprisingly natural, really. The first 10 seconds when I walk up to the front of the stage rather than the back of the stage feels a bit odd. But then like with so many things, the music starts and you just get swept along in it. That's one of the reasons why playing live is so great. No matter how you're feeling, no matter what's going on, you just get caught up in it. The adrenaline starts going, the music starts playing. Hopefully the audience starts smiling and... uh, it's just a wonderful place to be. Has it given you a deepened respect front person role? No, I still despise them. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I've, I've had nothing but respect for, you know, the bits that I've noticed front people having trouble with is the what to do when the, there's no singing to be done, but the band are playing. I've noticed every front man, Damon, you know, everybody kind of struggles to get something to do and Damon has often filled that by going and playing an instrument or doing something else so that's the approach I took so when I'm not singing I found myself something to do I've got very I've got uh, guitar I've got a keyboard I've got a little sample pad with samples on because there's vocals on this record it's not a vocal heavy record yeah absolutely it's a you know I'm going to have to fill in those gaps somehow, otherwise I'm going to just be standing in that way. I've seen so often singers just got standing sort of vaguely self-consciously, Yeah, which definitely brushes off into the audience. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. oh, okay, this is awkward. <laughs> so I don't want to get involved with any of that, any of that kind of weird dancing, flapping my hands about the... The best is Roger Daltrey, who does that odd thing with his microphone where he throws it up in the air and then catches it again. Well, yes... We can, yes. yeah. We only see it when he catches it, but yeah, plenty of times he's dropped it. But yeah, it's um, it's very interesting because if you can't dance, and a, yeah. a lot of front people cannot, how you move, it's going to give the crowd a slightly awkward vibe. Okay, yes. well, look, um, I wish you well with it. Thank you very much. Um, many congratulations. Look forward to seeing some of your shows, hopefully, and yeah, with the next two records as well so you've always kept busy but it's good to know that you intend to keep busy making music so I should actually put the pre-order links up tomorrow for the next (laughs) record shouldn't I that'll give the marketing people something to work towards Uh, you're entering into the spirit of what it is to release a record these days that's good to see as well Yeah, it's not a build it and they will come scenario anymore (laughs) no most definitely not no you have to drag them kicking and screaming build it and then go and corral them in Uh, Dave Roundtree, thanks very much, and uh, wish you luck and see you soon. Cheers. Cheers. 